All right. Hey, what's up, everybody? Um, introverts, I tried to get up here as fast as I could. I really did. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm the introvert, and so my church doesn't do this, okay? Just out of policy. Just like, yeah, I don't want to talk to a bunch of people. Um, hey, let me... Um, so uh, as I look around the room, uh, I don't know any of you anymore. I don't know any of you. So let me kind of reintroduce myself. Um, so my name's Chris. My wife, Kara Jane, is over here. We got two little ones back with uh, Grandma and Grandpa back in uh, Alabama. But we were, uh, we were a part of the beginning of Prov Road like 100 years ago. And um, I hooked up with Jeremy at a church down in Austin. He talked us into coming here, and, and we did. And I just can't tell you how cool it is to be, to be back. And so I'm just so uh, overwhelmingly thankful uh, for this church. Overwhelmingly thankful for this church. So much of who my family is is because of this city and because of this church, right? Um, the first six years of our marriage were shaped here, like the birth of my kids was shaped here. Um, I mean, we didn't go to OU. We don't have any family in, in Oklahoma. Like, this church was, was our family, and it shaped who, who, we, who we are. And that includes this super random calling to, to plant a church in Alabama. Right? So that's kind of what I'd like to do this, this morning. Right? I was kind of given the topic to explain like, why plant churches in the South, right? So, so number one, that's what I want to do. I want to explain how, where this calling came from to plant churches in the South. Number two, I, I, I want to update you on how that's going. And number three, I want to share what, what God has been teaching me uh, through being a church planner, through, through what has been a very difficult uh, season for us, okay? So I, I, on the one hand, I hope this is informative, uh, about church planning in, in Alabama, but um, more than that, I, I hope this will be encouraging to you if and when you find yourself walking in some very chaotic, stressful uh, a season in, in your life, okay? So that's, that's kind of where, where we're heading, all right? Three main reasons why we felt called to the South in general and to Auburn in particular, all right? Three reasons. Now, one is a, is a demographic reason, Two is a cultural reason, and then three is a, a personal reason, right? Now, uh, demographically, it is estimated that in the next 30 years, okay, by 2050, by 2050, there is going to be about 82 million people who do not currently live in the South that will move to the South, all right? Um, and I'm, I'm just talking about domestic migration. I'm not even including international migration at this point, okay? Just the South is growing like, like crazy, so I'm not going to bore you with, like, census data, okay? But just um, the, the, the brunt of it is, is that basically the South is way, way cheaper than the West Coast. It's way, way warmer than the Northeast. And everybody loves sweet tea, okay? <laughs> so people are flocking to the South in droves, okay? And so with this influx of people, um, we, we, we need to plant somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 new churches every year, not to get ahead of the curve, but just to keep pace with the population growth, okay? Um, that's to say nothing of the fact that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches are closing their doors every year. COVID accelerated that. Um, 
and just the simple reality is that Christianity as a whole, right, just is representative of a much smaller section of America than in the years years past. So even even in the Bible Belt, even in a very churched place, there simply is not enough churches, right? Even if every single established church in the South was um, theologically sound, missionally engaged, and pastorally healthy, right? Spoiler alert, they're not, okay? Um, Nobody I know is doing great, right? Nobody I know is killing it, and everyone, everyone is wounded, everyone's exhausted, everyone's confused, and everybody is working with less than what they were last year. Right? So nobody is like just killing it. Right? Everybody is, is in recovery mode, okay? But even if they were operating at full capacity, the established church in the South is not big enough and is not healthy enough to reach everyone, Okay? So as we are presently constructed in the South, there are millions and millions and millions of people that will be unchurched. And that's in a region called the Bible Belt, right? So the first reason is just simple math, right? There's lots of people that don't know Jesus, and we're not big enough or healthy enough to to reach everyone, right? So the second reason we felt called to the South is a cultural reason, right? Now listen, I'm I'm, I'm from Texas. I grew up in Texas. I consider Texas to be southern, but it's not the south, okay? That is a different deal down there, all right? But having grown up in Texas and then having lived in Oklahoma for a, for a while, we approach moving to Alabama the same way we would approach moving to Beijing, okay? It was like we, we were missionaries and we got to figure out this really weird mission field. And so my analysis of our new mission field is that the south is bananas, Okay? <laughs> The South is weird, guys. Um, you, you look at places like the Pacific Northwest. You look at the East Coast. Culturally, uh, those places are largely post-Christian, all right? meaning that Christianity is not the dominant influence that it, that it once was. Okay, uh, And the South is trending that direction, to be sure. But for a variety of reasons, uh, Christianity as a, as a social label still has some significant cultural value, okay? However, the content of Christianity, all right, the the implications of the gospel, the actual expression of what it looks like to follow Jesus, stuff like the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, all right, Sermon on the Mount, these tangible expressions of what it actually means, to follow Jesus, right? That kind of stuff is just as unpopular in the South as any place else in the country. That's what we're working with, right? So we live in a place where it is socially acceptable, even even socially advantageous to declare that Jesus is Savior, but functionally, functionally, the culture operates just like every place else in the country, okay? Okay? So people are happy to have Jesus as Savior, but functionally, they reject him as Lord, okay? Southerners, as it turns out, do not like to be told what to do, okay? That's kind of their shtick, right? They kind of built a whole culture on rebellion, right? That's a thing down there, right? No one likes to be told what to do. The South perfected that, right? That's an art form where we live, okay? So that, that mindset of we really like Jesus as Savior, but we're not really going to let him tell us what to do, 
that mindset has been around for centuries. All right, kind of this pseudo-shell Christianity. And that, what that has done, what that mindset has created is essentially that has institutionalized hypocrisy. Christian hypocrisy, where we live, has been normalized. And most people just simply live unaware that this cultural nominal Christianity is, is, is illegitimate. They don't know. They don't know. So they, they're happy to have Jesus as Savior, but they don't know that James or 1 John says, hey, that, that's, that's not legitimate. That's not real Christianity. That's, that is not, that's a missing piece in the South, all right? And so that has created an atmosphere where theology is separated from ethics, okay? So what we believe about God, what we know to be true about God, has no overlap for how we treat people, for how we act, for who we are. These are two separate categories when the scriptures present them as one category, right? So imagine an entire culture embracing that mindset. That's where we live, okay? And spiritually... That is a very, very confusing place to live. That is a very confusing place to live. And that spiritual confusion over the years has led to a great deal of abuse. Okay? That has led to a great deal of abuse. Now listen, that is painting with a broad brush. All right, So I don't, I don't mean to imply that every church east of the Mississippi is like theologically compromised. All right? that's, not, that's not true. Uh, not every pastor like preaches Exodus on Sunday and then buys slaves on Monday, right? That's not exactly true. But the South, it, it, is, it is fair to say that the, the South is a unique mission field in the sense that religion occupies a very prominent place within the culture. And yet the gospel does not. And in that sense, it is very similar to the world that Jesus lived in. People really, really like religion, and they don't really like grace. Especially people whose status and whose power is, is tied to the religious system, is tied to the status quo. And so that leads me to kind of the, the personal reasons why we felt called to this really weird place. Uh, CJ and I both were deeply impacted by college ministries when we were, we were in college, right? So my wife went to Auburn, I went to Texas Tech, and, in, and our involvement with college ministries while we were in school really changed the trajectory of our entire lives, okay? And so I believe that college towns, and Jay kind of alluded to this earlier, but college towns, I think, are both incredibly strategic for kingdom advancement and also incredibly under-resourced, okay? And I, I fully believe with my whole heart that the, the fastest way to change the state of Oklahoma is to plant churches in Norman and Stillwater, I just believe that, okay? Because what is absorbed and valued by 18 to 22-year-olds on those two campuses, that will shape how Tulsa and Oklahoma City are run for the next 50 years. Now, I can testify personally that that is true, but college ministry is very, very, very hard because 18 to 22-year-olds dumb, right? Okay? You remember you when you were 19? 
You're 19 years old, you go to one psychology class and you think you're smart? You know how dangerous that is? Right? We've got a whole pack of those people running around. 18 to 20-year-olds are dumb, they're broke, and they move every three semesters. Right? This is why there's been 112 different uh, restaurants at Campus Corner. Right? Because establishing any sense of stability, any sense of consistency, it's very, very hard in college towns. Right? And this is why church planning organizations tend to focus on suburbs, right? No shade to suburbs. That's where people live, right? But college towns and inner cities, right, places that are highly transient and have a lower socioeconomic base, you just have to adjust your expectations. You have to have different timelines. You have to different definitions of success. Okay? But uh, the Lord saw fit to put that on our hearts. Okay? And so we, we felt called to invest our lives in, in college towns. Okay? And so the vision, the vision for what we want to do in the South is nothing short of a full-fledged reformation. We want to see the South reformed. We want to see the Bible Belt turned upside down. Okay? This is a very, very religious, but very, very lost part of the world. Okay? I, I, I maintain that there is the same percentage of lost people in the South as anywhere else. Just a higher percentage of them go to church. That's a weird place to do ministry, okay? But we feel called to be there, right? And so if, if your goal is to see reformation of this part of the country, probably strategically you're going to have to do that from four key culture-making centers, right? If you're going to turn the South upside down, you're going to have to do it from... Houston, Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. Okay. Four very strategic, important cities. Okay? And Auburn University, as much as any place in the entire world, equips people to go to those four cities. That is the Auburn alumni pipeline. Okay? That's why we moved there. That's why we left Norman. We had a pretty good gig going here. And we left here because that was the goal. Right? We're going to turn the South upside down. Right? And we want to be a part of ushering in a new era of spirituality right? that, that it has to reform this pseudo-Christian, this nominal thing that is illegitimate. Right? Because those people need to know about grace. What they've been given for centuries has led them to hell. It has not shaped the culture. Okay? That's why we moved there. Okay. So the question is, how's that going? And the answer, the most honest answer, I guess, uh, is it's going very, very slow. It's very, very slow. Okay. So, so we parachuted into Auburn about three years ago, and we talked about a dozen college students into the vision of this church that did not exist. Okay. And we get, began to pray for God to create a church that was, um, that was missional, right? Not, not consumeristic, all right? So we, we had this vision that we wanted to kind of re, re, relationally invest in some different neighborhoods at a kind of a hyper-local level, all right? We didn't want to try to create high production value events, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that, it's just that I don't want to trot out like a B-team version of what's already there, Okay. So we wanted to be highly relational. We wanted to, to missionally engage in these neighborhoods. 
We wanted to plant something that was multi-ethnic. Right? Now, again, I don't, this is not breaking news, okay? but historically, multi-ethnic churches in East Alabama has not gone great. There's some cultural baggage there that just won't go away. Okay? But as we got this little ragtag group of college students together and we started to pray together, and we started to read Ephesians. And just like the liturgy that we went through earlier, we started to go through Ephesians together. And as you study Ephesians, we just simply could not ignore the fact, we could not ignore the theological reality that union with Christ leads to union with people. That's the New Testament, okay? Union with Christ leads to union with people, okay? And Paul continually insists, all right? Paul just will not stop talking about this. Paul continually insists that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, in light of that, it is therefore inappropriate to have a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over here. If what Jesus on the cross did is legitimate, it is inappropriate to have two different kinds of churches, okay? Because the barriers that really exist between these people groups, that, those are real. But those barriers have been knocked down in Christ. And so the New Testament church is supposed to model a new kind of a humanity, not Christianize the old one. We're supposed to model a new kind of humanity. And in a place with so much division, so much segregation, so much disparity uh, between the haves and the have-nots, if that kind of an Ephesians church rooted in union DNA, if that could take place, that would be really, really good news to my city. That would be good news because nobody's doing that. All right? Everybody reads Ephesians. Nobody thinks, multi-ethnic. Multi oh, that's good, right? Everybody wants everybody others, everybody others' church to be multi-ethnic. Nobody wants their church to be multi-ethnic. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody, so many people pat me on the back. Okay, it's like, that is so good for you. I mean, we're not interested in doing that, but, like, good for you, right? Like, that's the South, okay? So in September of 2018, Union Church was born. Uh, and we had some early momentum, and about 18 months in, we, we looked around, and we had about 40, 45 people um, coming every week. And we had this really energetic, dynamic prayer meeting, and that was kind of the spoke that everything revolved around. Uh, it was kind of our centerpiece, and we were getting ready to move from a Sunday evening venue to a Sunday morning venue, and that was going to give us some kind of more visibility in our city. We had two missional communities that were really healthy. We were getting ready to launch two more, so we were going to enter. We we're like, we're going to be on Sunday mornings now. We're going to have four missional communities scattered across the city. We're going to start kind of hitting, hitting our stride. And then COVID happened, um, and Auburn sent everybody home. Okay, now listen, Al Auburn is a city of sixty thousand. Okay, overnight, overnight. We went to 30,000 overnight, right? No one came back after spring break. Just with our, our city, we just went ghost town, 
Right? Y'all know how it is. You, you know, what's, what's Norman like in October versus Norman in December? Right? You can park anywhere in December. It's awesome. Right? Imagine that, but in the middle of the year. It was bananas. And we lost half of our church. Just never came back. Just never came back. Right? We had a bunch of young people, and they just graduated via Zoom, and we never saw them again. So all these relationships that we had spent years investing in, they all moved to Atlanta. And just COVID just messed everything up, okay? So obviously that, that set us back in terms of momentum. That set us back in terms of, of resources. It, it, it really wounded Carrie Jane and I in terms of relationships. We were just really lonely. We were just really lonely. Like when you're half your church doesn't come back, who are you supposed to hang out with, okay? And then on top of all that, um, George Floyd happened. And because the nation was locked down and no one had anything else to do, kind of there were many, many eyes opened to the reality of racial injustice. And the very thing that our church was built to champion, the thing that our church was built to embody, dissolved in front of our eyes. And I was just, just, Lord, what are you doing? I mean, what are you doing? I mean, we are trying to build the thing, the very thing that this region went to war to prevent from ever happening. We're trying to build that. And, and the one time, the one time since the 60s that this issue is, is thrust into the forefront of America's imagination... The one time that racial justice is an inescapable reality that people have to deal with, that's the one time in American history where we can't go to church? What are you doing? And so we did what everybody did, right? We pivoted to Zoom, and we had online prayer meetings, and we would meet in backyards and in, in parks, uh, but we just didn't have the, the infrastructure to sustain us, right? It just happened at kind of the perfect time where we were just too fragile, we're just too young to, to be able to maintain, to be able to sustain through prolonged periods of separation, right? So uh, we're back to square one. Okay, we're back to square one. We got a little crew of about 15 to 20 people, um, and we're going to... Uh, Relaunch in the fall. Okay, we're going to pick up the pieces and we're going to we're going to relaunch in the fall. Uh, but here's what's uh, here's what's encouraging. Okay, that was I mean that was super. I mean I'm Captain Sunshine up here, right? I'm sorry. I just that was really that was more cathartic for me than that was for you. Um, but um, here, but here's what it was encouraging. Okay, here's what is encouraging. Last Sunday, last Sunday we had uh, basically the whole church over, which is like twelve people, right? So we had everybody over, and we just had dinner together, right? which that's refreshing, right, to have people in your living room again. Like, that was great. And so we had people over, and 25% of that room is not white. Now, that is not earth-shattering. That is not going to launch Reformation. That's a big deal in East Alabama. That's a big deal to share a meal with people that are of a different ethnicity we shared a meal in my living room, 
and we prayed for revival together. That's a, that is a first step, okay? That is not anything miraculous, but that is, that is a good first step, okay? And in our very, our very brief, our very janky, very disjointed history, our church has gathered to pray that prayer 138 times. In a very small, very young church, we have gathered for the specific purpose of asking for revival 138 times. Okay? Now listen, as it turns out, 138 times is not enough uh, to launch a revival. And I don't know how many it's going to take. More than 138, I guess. Um, but our church is committed to kind of standing in that gap. Right? I don't know what we're going to be able to accomplish, but we will gather to pray for revival every single week. Okay? That's what we're going to do. And we might go down. That might kill us, but that's what we're going to do. Okay? We're going to stand in that gap. And we're just, I don't, again, prayer, it turns out, is not one of these quantitative deals where A plus B equals C. That's not how it works. I don't really know how it works. It's kind of mysterious in the scriptures. But what my church is doing is we're stacking firewood. Every single week, we get together and we stack firewood and we ask God to send fire. And he hasn't yet. But at some point, and maybe it's after I'm dead, all right? Maybe it's, it's when my kids are going to Auburn. Maybe, that, maybe they'll get to inherit some of this, you know, some of this racial justice, some of this, uh, this peace, this unity, this harmony, right? Maybe they'll get to see more of the kingdom uh, tangibly expressed in the South than we will. So my job, until I'm told differently, is to just stack wood and ask for the fire to come. Okay. So, <clears throat> just between you and me, um, I have a lot of questions for the Lord. I have a lot of questions, and this is not how I would have planned for this little adventure to go. And I don't know what happens next. It felt like it was an uphill fight uh, the first time, right? And now we have fewer people and fewer resources than what we started with. And I'm like a lot more tired than I was three years ago, right? We kind of had that thing where we we're very idealistic, very naive. Well, that is not the case anymore. <laughs> now I'm just mad and jaded and like, Ugh, you know, it's not great. Um, but here's what I'm holding on to, okay? Here's what I'm holding on to. And I know you didn't come, like you didn't sign up this morning to hear about Alabama census data. I get that. So this is not applicable, but this part, this is what you need to hear, okay? Um, I do not know what you walked in here with this morning, but this is the only thing that's been good news to me for 18 months, okay? And so the off, on the off chance that you're walking through something that you don't understand, this is what I need you to hear. Um, in the most chaotic, in the most stressful, the most discouraging season of my life, I have had to remember the cross. Okay? And I don't mean that in like the stupid Christian, like cliche bumper sticker kind of a way. I mean that like I have had to literally make myself remember what happened on the cross. Okay? Because when Jesus died, when Jesus was crucified, nothing about that made any sense. You understand? When they killed Jesus, 
That was not supposed to happen, okay? The only perfect, the only gentle, the only obedient person who ever walked the earth, that guy was going to be tortured and executed by corrupt politicians? That's the story? That the, that the bad guys won? That evil won? There's no spinning crucifixion. That's how movements die. That's the end of that sentence. When you get crucified, there's, not, there's nothing that happens after that. But we know. We know that the cross is the ultimate reminder that what appears to be true and what is actually true is not necessarily the same thing. So at the risk of oversimplifying, it really does boil down to this, okay? Listen, like, let's not make this more complicated than what it is. It really does boil down to this. If the resurrection is real, if the resurrection is real, you don't have to be afraid. Full stop. If Jesus is alive, if they, kill, if they tortured him, if they killed him, and he came back, you don't have to be scared of anything. If he slayed the big giant, the little one's like, what are we worried about? What are we worried about? You don't have to be afraid. If the resurrection is real, then cancer is not the final say. Cancer doesn't get to have the last word on things. If the resurrection is real, then divorce is not the final thing. If the resurrection is real, then bankruptcy is not the final thing. If it's a, a sluggish economy or a Democrat in the White House or whatever the thing is that causes anxiety in you, if the resurrection is real, we don't have to be afraid. You don't. If Jesus is alive, if he's with us, then the cross means that we can trust that what he is doing is the most loving thing concerning you. The cross is the reminder that he is currently doing, regardless of what it looks like, the cross is the reminder that he is doing the most loving thing concerning you, regardless of what it looks like. And it's when we become secure in that reality when we're sure that that is true, then you can walk into any room and serve instead of expecting to be served. You're free. You're free to give instead of having to posture yourself in order to take. Right? You can walk into any room and have the resources to listen instead of needing to be heard. That's what Norman needs. That's what Auburn needs. What we need is people that understand that they're already saved. They're safe. They're secure. 
that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient. We don't have to be afraid of anything or anyone. The church is the only group of people in the world who have the resources to live without fear. And that should make us incredibly humble, incredibly patient, incredibly generous people. And that is how you change the world. It really, I mean, that's how you change the world. Amen? Um, before we uh, sing some more, I, if it's okay, I would, like to, um, I would like to pronounce a benediction over you. All right, I think we'll do another benediction at the end. So this is the pre-benediction. <clears throat> but this is how we... Um, this is how we close every, every service back in, back in Auburn, okay? And this isn't from Chris. This isn't from Union Church. This isn't from Acts 29. This is your inheritance as a child of God, okay? So if you just, just bow your head and just let me pronounce this over you, okay? This is, this is true whether it feels true or not. This is true whether you think it's true or not. This is a reality that is pronounced over you. Take courage. Because of your union with Christ, you are deeply loved by the Father. You were completely accepted by the Son, and you were strategically sent out by the Spirit. And the only thing, the only thing that is required of you is to be what you already are. I love you guys, and thank y'all for letting us be here. And let me uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll move on. Father, you are um, you're too good to be true, um, but you are. And so, God, would you would you remind us of the fact that? that our sins have been forgiven so we don't have to live in shame, that our future is already uh, shaped according to your will and so we don't have to be afraid. So God, would we be the most secure people in the world and would we use our security to serve instead of being served? Would we use that security to give instead of taking? Would we use that security to listen instead of lecturing? And would we pursue the type of unity that you have with the Father. God, make that true in Norman, Oklahoma. And make that true in Auburn, Alabama. God, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.